Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. Since the call of Abraham, the Jews have been God's special chosen people. You know, Christians, we that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we should look forward to the day that the Jews receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah when they put their faith and trust in Him. We should yearn for the day when all will cry out to Him and put their faith in Him as their sole Messiah that they've been looking forward to. When Christ is on the throne, and it talks about that in the millennial kingdom. You know, one of my favorite places that I enjoy when we go to Israel is to go to Megiddo, the Tel of Megiddo. Megiddo is also known as Armageddon. And as you're standing on the Tel of Megiddo, there are civilizations that have built on top of previous civilizations. So it's way, I don't know, maybe uh, 40, 50, 60 feet up in the air. And as you're looking on the northern edge of the Tel, and you're looking at this vast plain that's in front of you, this incredible plain of Megiddo, you're just impressed with the vastness of this field and the vastness of, of this terrain. In fact, it's said of Napoleon Bonaparte, said of this field, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this plain. And yet of that plain, we will be there one day. We that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior because as we descend from the heavens... And we come down at Megiddo and the battle of Armageddon plays out. And it says in Revelation 19 that we will be also on white horses following the master on the white horse. We will see Satan and the evil one conquered and crushed in that great battle. And yet throughout history, as we study history, throughout centuries, there has been great oppression that has just been poured out upon the Jewish people, including attempts to annihilate them during the 1930s and 40s in Hitler's regime, when six, some six million Jews were exterminated and killed and were murdered. And although the Jewish people have been scattered to every part of the world, and yet they have been um, taken into captivity in numerous um, countries over the years, and even their identity has sometimes become cloudy as they have intermarried. Yet they have remained a distinct people. God has a promise specifically for them. You know, when we turn to the Scriptures, and those of us that love the Word of God, when we turn there and we see the promises of God to the Jewish people in um, Genesis on through the whole Old Testament, we're just impressed with the promise that he made to Abraham some 4,000 years ago in Genesis chapter 12, that I will bless you and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we move forward a thousand years into 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he makes these promises to David that on through your seed you will have one that will sit on a throne forever. These incredible promises that are, that are played out. And we read about the promises throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declare the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. And many great promises recorded. Yet in the meanwhile, God's people cry out. The Jews cry out, and they, they ask God, well, is there really a God? 
Where is this God if he's made such promises to us? Why are we, his chosen people, so, so, so punished? Why do we have such a difficult time? And you'll recognize this clip, this familiar clip from Fiddler on the Roof when he raises such a question. You know, that response, God, if you have blessed us so, you've, you, you've told us about it all in your divine oracles, and yet why does all of this happen to us? Why don't we experience your blessings if we're really the chosen people? Why do we suffer so? God answers that question in our passage that we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. Jesus gives a sobering answer. This is why the Jewish people will suffer, and this is why they are suffering. Let's put it into context as we step into this, this great passage. We understand that this is Christ's last public message. In fact, he has now all but been rejected. And he stands before the Pharisees and the religious leaders and he gives his seven woes. Woe, woe, woe. Seven times in Matthew chapter 23 that he announces this. And then he turns the corner in this passage and he says, this is what's going to happen. And he utters a judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem, coming upon Israel for rejecting him. And yet in the midst of this judgment of woe, in the midst of this catastrophic prediction that's going to happen, your house will be left to you desolate. We see the heart of Jesus as he grieves over this city, as he laments, as he gives this judgment, but his heart aches. Oh, Jerusalem. So if I were to have a big idea, I would say, may we lament like Jesus lamented. May we be moved in our hearts as we look at our neighbors across the street from us or with our work associates with whom we work or our family members. May our hearts ache because they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. May we yearn for them to come to know Christ. May we lament as Jesus lamented. Let's step into this passage in verse 37. It's always good when we're looking into the Word of God to ask, what time is it? I don't mean like the time on our watch, but, but what's the setting as we come to this? What's, what's happened before? Where, where do we find ourselves in? Jesus is now two days away from his betrayal. Um, Jesus Christ is on the edge of being betrayed and crucified. And in this setting, he that knows everything, he understands all that's before him. In two days, Judas would betray him bring a mob into the garden with clubs and, and knives to take him and take him prisoner. And then shortly thereafter, Peter would deny knowing him three times, and the fickle crowd would shout, crucify him, crucify him. Christ knows all of that. And we step into this passage with all of that as the backdrop. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. You know, the previous morning, Christ had entered and it shows us in Luke 23, his words, as he entered high and he looked down upon Jerusalem and he uttered these words, would that you, even you had known the day on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you. Christ's heart was heavy and it is the next day as he comes and he looks and sees the city of Jerusalem. I can remember the first time I've been to Israel twice. 
the first time in 2004, our church on Long Island had sent, um, they were going to send the two of us, but wasn't enough money after four years. Lynn said, Dave, maybe you just had better go. And so there was enough funds, and they kindly sent me. And I went with a group of pastors, and a friend of mine that was pastoring in Kendall Park, uh, Mark Strangman, he and I also went. We roomed together. And I, w- I was excited over so many places, and Megiddo, Hezekiah's Tunnel, which we didn't get to see, but I saw it the following year. But to get to Jerusalem, there was just something I couldn't wait. So we got to Jerusalem at the end of our tour. It was like 8, 8.30 at night, and everybody's putting their bags away, and I said, okay, let's go. Nobody was going to Jerusalem that night. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Here we are in Jerusalem. You're not going to Jerusalem? Well, Mark and I were going hands down. Nobody else joined us. There were like 30-some people on the tour. Those fuddy-duddies went to their rooms. I got my backpack, and we made our way. It was about a half a mile, mile trek that we walked the streets and got to the old city of Jerusalem and walking under Damascus. It wasn't quite like I thought. It wasn't lights blazing. It was a little dark entering into the Muslim quarters, and now I'm convinced a guy's following behind us, and I'm thinking, maybe there's a reason why everyone else didn't go, but I was in Jerusalem as we made our way, and I just saw the lights were calling me, come, come towards us, and as we made it into that square, the temple square, and the lights on the, the wailing wall, I was in Jerusalem. I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus is feeling when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's not a step of excitement, a step of anticipation, a step of motivation and beauty and awe of such a city. He's crying out with him in him, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's his heart, his lament is crying forth as he sees the city, the city that represents the center of all of Israel, Jewish life. There in the city of Jerusalem where God's presence was considered to dwell by being in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And he aches and he cries, oh, Jerusalem. Why does he say that? Because not only their past history of killing and stoning all of the prophets, but he knows what's about to happen to the greatest prophet. He is about to be executed. He is about to be rejected by them. And he understands that. And his heart is aching. It cries and laments, oh, Jerusalem. What he was offering to them. Now, put yourself in Jesus' sandals. How would you have felt to know that this Messiah that was predicted from eternity past, but it started to unfold in the book of beginnings, and there is in Genesis, the seed of the woman would crush that of the serpent, and every prophet talked about it. In fact, the angels, Peter says, looked forward to this message that was given to them. And the Jewish people supposedly looked forward to the Messiah, but here he is now, and he's about to be rejected. Kind of like if you're a child, you have a son or a daughter, and they just do something unbelievable, just off the charts. It's a heinous crime, and, and they're going to go away. They're, they, they're going to be arrested. Whatever, whatever they did, and you just cry, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy. And your heart's crying. You're just broken over what they've done. That's the feeling that Jesus feels here. Oh, Jerusalem. And he moves on. He says, you that kill the prophets, stone the prophets, you that, that, that murders who sent before you. You know, there are, there are two truths that just jump out at me when I looked at this. Number one is, don't you just love the patience of God? I mean, how much would you put up with if you were God? 
hurts to even think that way. And there is one of your prophets. That they, they stoned them or they killed one, maybe two. What would you do? You're done, buddy. But here is from Abel to Zechariah, he keeps sending messengers and messengers and messengers. And we see throughout the scriptures, Jeremiah they punish. Ezekiel fared a little bit better. Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter, chapter 12. Amos had to flee and leave. It's, it's, it's told in Jewish history that Isaiah was sawed in half by a wooden saw. So all of these prophets that they, they murdered from Abel to Zechariah, but yet the patience of God. God was so patient, but that gives us a picture. But you know when it really shouts out when the greatest prophet was being crucified? And what would he say on the cross? God, strike him down. Let's get it rolling. Let's get a new people. No, he didn't do that, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was that just words of a kind man being uttered, or would it be something that would happen? Go to Acts chapter 2. And you'll see in that message of Peter, the ones that shouted, crucify him, are the ones that are repenting. So here we see the love and the patience of God just screaming forth. You kill and stone the prophets. And secondly, we understand the rebellion against God. That they hated, they hated a word that was opposed to their lifestyle. That they resisted God. And in fact, it says that you're killing and stoning. And they're in the Greek participles and the present tense. Present active participle can be translated, are killing, are stoning. It was something that was happening in the present. That was their mindset. In fact, they'll do it in a couple days. So this is who they were. They, they had this hatred. They had this, this feeling. And Jesus knew that. And yet, he still cries, oh, Jerusalem. The lament that he has. But look, look at his heart and what he says. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under the wings and you were not willing. Christ makes this statement of his tenderly laments Israel's rebellion. In the midst of this rebellion, how often? He doesn't say, you know, there was a time once in the past, I think I can remember, I would have gathered you. No, he says, how often? That's many times. In fact, it defines his whole three-and-a-half-year ministry. I continually would have brought you in. I continually would have gathered you. He said, how, I would, how often would I have gathered you? The word would, New Americans translated um, wanted. In our ESV, it's would. It means to desire. How often I desired, how often I wanted to do this. It's a desire that he had. You know, we all have different desires, but here we see the desire of Jesus. He wanted to gather Israel in. He wanted to rescue them. He wanted to free them from their spiritual bondage. And he said, how often I would have done that. By the way, the word would and the word willing in this verse are the same Greek word. And it says, he says, I often was willing, I often desired to save you, to rescue you, to gather you, which he uses twice, but you were not willing, you did not desire, you did not want me to rescue you. So here he says, I wanted it, but you didn't want it. But he doesn't write him off. He still laments, he still cries, he aches when he looks down and he says, how he desired to save them, how he desired to rescue them. And he would show that desire by going to the cross shortly. Just pause for a moment. We need to often go to this truth. In our, in our spiritual diet, so to speak, 
and our spiritual journey. We need this truth to be reminded of the patience and love of Jesus. You know, we could get so wrapped up in life. You know, we're, we, we plan things. We put our brackets together. We're planning to go out west. We're planning to go to Israel. We're planning to do all of these things. Planning for our house to be invaded this weekend. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. Everybody's coming. Okay, one son-in-law can't make it. Love you, Mark, but just send your, your wife and kids. You know, but we, we plan all of these things, but, but you know, here as we see this, this incredible plan that, that God has that he desired, he wanted to rescue mankind, oh, Jerusalem, and he had this in his, in his plan, but they rejected it. And yet he would still carry out his, his incredible desire, his incredible plan. You know, what is your response when, when people hurt you? When people reject you you, 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 you have something you want to share with somebody and they reject you, something that you're passionate, you know is going to help them, and they look at you and say, you knucklehead, leave me alone, or whatever comment they might make. Are you happy when people reject your, your all-wise knowledge? Are you, are, you, are you happy when your kids or when you really know what's better, not that you're being cocky, but you really know how to do it better, and yet they, they don't want to listen to you? That's, that's what's happening here. I mean, we in the world, I once had a friend. I reached out to him. I was challenging him, and, and God knows that my desire, and he would later tell me when people hurt me, I just write them off. Well, I hurt him because I challenged him about his walk with God and, you know, and, and, and what was happening there, and eventually God brought us back together again. But, but people write people off, or they give them the cold shoulder, like boyfriend and girlfriend breaking up. Well, I'm not going to talk to them any longer. But that's not what Jesus does when he's rejected. He continues to reach. He continues to lament. And yeah, he would be crucified, but it would be for their good. What a Savior. That's what we need to remind ourselves of often, of such a compassionate, loving, caring Savior. God, may I remember in the busyness of life that what you've done for me and how you've loved me. We move on and we see he says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under the wings and you, and you were not. You did not want this. Jesus didn't write them off. Jesus would have gladly have gathered them as a, as a, as a hen. Maybe it's a, as a chicken hawk that's coming out of the sky and the hen sees that chicken hawk descending down towards them with her claws, ominous claws stretched out and she clucks and pulls the little ones together and their safety under her wings and quickly runs. Or maybe it was a storm that was coming from the east and the lightning rumbles were heard and she quickly gave her cluck warning and pulled her group. That's what Jesus wanted to do. He saw what was coming upon Jerusalem and yet they rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. You see, Jesus was looking for more than just a physical restoration. They wanted to physically be restored. But what was he talking about? He was talking what kind of restoration? It was a spiritual one, right? He wanted to bring them to the truth. He wanted to rescue them from themselves. They were dead in their sins. They didn't see it. He's lamenting over their blindness. He's lamenting over their rejection of him. And he's calling them, but they want nothing to do it. We're familiar with Matthew 11 when Christ spoke the words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, there's a world out there of people that are just like in Jesus' day, they're blind spiritually. They cannot save themselves. You know, people, whatever theologies they want to come up with, whatever churches, whatever cults, but the Word of God says that we're born dead in our sins. And you were dead in sins. 
going to the Baptist church and giving money and singing in the choir and going on mission trips and whatever. It's, it's all nice things, but it doesn't save us, right? We're dead in our sins. We're separate from God. We need a Savior. Christ saw that in his day, and he sees it today. That man's separate. That man is, is dead, but he invites it as his arms continually stretched out. Come to me. You that are just tired in life. You that realize you can't save yourselves. You that are, that are worn out. You that are fatigued in the battles of life and how you're being beat. Come to me and find protection. Find healing. Find meaning and purpose. But he makes a statement at the end of verse 37. You were not willing. Christ would have brought them together. But they were not willing. You see, that day that Christ was there, right, was he a friend or a foe? When he was on earth, he was their friend. He was there to give them purpose and meaning and, and, and heal them spiritually. But the day they rejected him, he talks about desolation coming upon him. Then he becomes their, their foe, in a sense. He becomes their judge when they reject Christ as their Savior. In 1944, June 6, when American paratroopers landed in France on the beginning of the Normandy invasion, actually it was June 5th, the night before, and in the darkness as they descended down, how would they communicate? Because they were going to be off, off, um, off target. How would they know where their friends are? Well, they had this thing called the cricket. It was a clicker. And you could buy a remodeled one. You probably could buy some, uh, some old ones still, um, pretty expensive, but it's 10 bucks if you want the remodeled um, make-believe one. And you would click it, and that's a way of communicating. So I would click once. So if I hear a noise in the darkness, and I have this clicker, I would click once. And if, Tim, if you're one of my paratroopers, then you're going to respond back with two clicks saying, hey, I'm right here, buddy, American. We're on the same side. But if I didn't hear those two clicks, didn't respond back, I knew that the noise I heard over there was not a friendly noise. And that was called an IFF, identification friend or foe. The, the clicker was identify friend or foe. Well, you see, Jesus Christ here is a friend, but he's going to be a foe. If people continue down the path, though his arms are extended, they're going to be withdrawn if they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior and die in that condition. Man's born again dead spiritually, and if he dies physically in that spiritual dead condition, he will experience the second death, being separated from God forever. That truth should cause me to toss and turn at night. It should cause me to get out of my easy chair and watching the ball game, whatever, and to, and, and to be praying or to try to build relationships with neighbors. It, it ought to drive us the reality of a lost condition. Jesus lamented over that. And you were not willing. He speaks of a coming judgment in verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Imagine what they had. The greatest opportunity ever. I mean, we can listen to, appreciate our, the great preaching that we hear on a Sunday here from Pastor Walker. We could turn on radio and you hear great preachers on the radio. But they had the greatest. They had God the Son in their midst, right? They had the eternal one that spoke the world into existence. They had God the creator in human form. God incarnate. That's, that's pretty awesome. 
they had this person in their presence and they had this awesome God, this awesome creator. And yet it says that they were not willing. They're rejecting him. Though this privilege, when Christ says, he that has seen me has seen the Father, they saw God the Father, so to speak. They had God in flesh before them. They could eat with him. They could touch him. They could put their arm around him. They could listen to his sweet teaching. But they were not willing. They're about to reject him. Everything's going to change. No longer will they have God the Son, the sweet miracle worker that brought all the the joy to their homes. No longer will they hear shouts of joy over people that have been healed. It's all about to change. And he says, you're going to bring upon your house, it's going to become desolate. House, probably referring to the temple. Um, Some think it's referring to, to Jerusalem, even Israel as a broad group of people. But God's house where God considered to dwell, it's about to be destroyed. It's about to be made desolate. It's about to be crushed. When would that happen? 70 AD, when it would be totally demolished, when the Romans would come and punish and crush the Jewish rebellion. But your house is about to be left to you desolate. Look at the words that are said next. These are some pretty, pretty crushing words. For I tell you, you will not see me again. Now, those words maybe don't mean a lot until we stop and think about who is speaking them. Who is he that's speaking them? Jesus Christ is the what? In the Jewish mindset, is the Messiah. He's the Christ. So he's the one. Did did they look forward to the Messiah? Was it not Andrew saying to Peter, come and find the one we we have found, the Messiah? Was it not the Samaritan woman that said, Come and see a man that's told me everything I did. Is this not the Christ? Or was it not the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they're downcast and Jesus comes alongside them? Oh, we had hoped that he was the one that, you know, the prophets talked about. Or did John the Baptist not send his disciples and say, would you ask him if he's the one? Or do we look for another? You see, they look for the Messiah, but he's about to leave. I tell you, you will not see me again. This is the last statement that Jesus will make before them publicly. What if the Bible would have ended here? What if it really would have happened like that? What would have changed? What of our theology would be different? If there wasn't the next awesome word, And if it ended, you will not see me again. What would be different in the Bible? Okay, we want to have a different theology because there's no promises that are going to be kept to the Israel people, to the Jewish people. They're never seeing him again. Boom, it's done with. He's done with Jews, with Israel. Um, What would it say about our God that made promises, that he made promises to the Jewish people that he would see them? What would that say of such a God? Well, God, can can I trust you? If you're not keeping your word to them, how do I know that I could trust you? But the next word changes everything. You will not see me again until, until there's, there's, a, there's a hope, there's a change that's going to happen. You will see me again. Oh yeah, you're rejecting me. Your house is going to be left to you desolate, but I am not setting aside Israel. I am not done completely with Israel. There is going to be a future day. There's going to be a future hope. There's going to be a future purpose that I, will, that I will accomplish. You see, this word hope changed, I mean, uh, until changes everything. 
Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, if we could go back one. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. The Lord is our righteousness. In that future day, that promise will be accomplished. Christ will come. Christ will reign. Christ will save Israel. And this is one of the places in the fields that are behind me. In the fields of Megiddo, God will defend himself and God will come and make himself known and, to, and crush the wicked one. Look what's attached to it. You will not see me again until what? Their hearts are going to be changed. Everything's going to be different. You, when you see me the next time, you will be given a heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone. You will say, as it says in the psalm as predicted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, they had said that a couple days earlier at the triumphal entry in Matthew 21 when the crowd saw Jesus and they were pumped, but they were looking for a physical Savior. They didn't understand the spiritual Savior. And they're saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But Christ says of them, you will not see me again until you say that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Zechariah 12 is one of many passages that gives that awesome promise as the the, the, the Son of God, God the Son, Yahweh, descends from the heavens. And it says, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. That's predicted some six, 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're going to look on the Messiah that they have pierced. And why are they going to cry? Why will they rejoice? Both of those emotions. Because they will understand what they have rejected. And how it could all have been different in their history. But they will rejoice that he's here and the Messiah is here to defend us. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord to crush the enemies that are surrounded us right here and about to destroy us. Victory belongs to us. One of the great truths of the Bible is that God loves man. I can't explain it. But God is a God of love. And God would go to such measures that he would ordain in the midst of man rejecting him that he would send his son to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again because we could not earn our way to heaven. We did not have the answer. We did not have a solution. But God proved his love to us. God's love is clearly seen at the cross. God lamented. God the Son lamented over Israel's rejection. And it's seen by his love. And he still laments over people rejecting him. What is your response to Christ? What is your response to such a Savior? Will it be said of you, and you were not willing? Christ's hands are extended to you. And if I may just put it very simply, my friend, if you're trusting in anything that you can do to earn God's favor, then you will be missing heaven. Because it's not by what we can do, but it's by what Christ has done. And it will be said of you, you were not willing because you're thinking you can do something in that equation. God, the, the Savior, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He could kind of like do it on his own. In fact, he did. He died on the cross and rose again. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to trust in, 
in, in a church or in your efforts or in baptism or communion or anything that you think you have to do. He just wants you to trust in him. Lest it said of you, and you were not willing. You have the opportunity today to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But let me speak to those of you in closing that know Christ. How are you doing in your heart for, for the lost? Do you and I have the heart that God has? When was the last time I lamented? When was the last time that I, I cried, that you cried for the lost around you? When was the last time that you wept over the lost condition of your neighbor and that you sat down with your husband or your wife and said, let's come up with a plan. How can we build relationships? We that by God's grace humbly know what his word says, how can we build relationships with our neighbors and have them over? When was the last time we lamented and wept? May we become like our Savior. May we be... (coughs) May we be showers of blessings to others. Let's close in prayer. God, we love you. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for Christ our Savior, that he came and loved us, demonstrated that love in many ways, but the greatest is that he died on the cross for my sins, for our sins, that Christ's death is not in vain. For if we could be saved by our efforts, then Christ died for no purpose. But God, thank you that Christ did not die in vain. God, thank you that this room is filled with many people that refuse the willing part, that they were willing. It will not be said of many of us that we were not willing. We were willing to embrace Christ. We were willing to accept Christ. We were willing to get out of the saving business. We were willing to trust in Christ alone. God, we love you and we thank you. And I pray for any that are here this morning that may not know Christ as their Savior, that today would be their day of salvation. With heads bound and eyes closed, no one looking around, are you willing? Are you here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to a point in your life where you said, I know it's not by what I can do. I, I now get that. But it's always been my whole life by what I try to do, what you're striving to do. Maybe you're trusting in a church or trusting in something that you have done, but you understand it's the blood of Jesus. God demonstrated his love towards us. While we were in this condition of being sinners, Christ died for you. He took your place. Simply by raising your hand, he said, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that if I were to die today that I would spend forever with God. I'm not sure that I would go to heaven because I've been trusting in my own efforts. Is there anybody simply by raising your hand say, pray for me? I'm not asking you to come forward. I'm just asking if you would pray and maybe we could even talk at some point. Anybody? Father, I do trust and pray that each of us have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Christ alone. God, may we now be on mission. May we go out and reach a world by your grace for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.